Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 19th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, the HSE is proposing to close the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. For any proposal to be considered, we would need to be satisfied on several levels. And I am not satisfied, and government is not satisfied, and members of the Oireachtas are not satisfied. And I want to acknowledge that. This includes legitimate questions raised by members of the Oireachtas on issues including access to the medical assessment unit, capacity of the National Ambulance Service, local access to GPs, emergency and other resources in Drogheda and other hospitals, the use of of, uh, injury units and more. All of these issues have to be addressed. And they have not been addressed to my satisfaction, to the government's satisfaction, and I dare say to this House's satisfaction. So we are all agreed on that. That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, speaking last month. Uh, All of the politicians are uh, agreed on that. The HSE has a a completely different view. And let's hear that now from Dr. Jerry McCarthy, who's the HSE's National Clinical Lead for Emergency Medicine. Uh, And good morning to you, Dr. McCarthy, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Why is the Minister wrong? Good morning, Michael. Uh, I don't know that the minister is wrong. The minister is doing his correct due diligence, if you like, to ensure that all questions have been answered to a level of satisfaction to assure people about the plans for the future. Um, Could I just say a couple of sentences about the emergency medicine programme, why I kind of end up uh, on your Mm programme like this? So it's one of a number of national clinical programmes relating to different specialisms in my area, uh, particular case, it's emergency medicine, and it's comprised of doctors, nurses, therapists, other relevant practitioners. And the key requirement of any of the programs is to recommend what we call models of care, or what other people might say, what good looks like. In other words, how do you provide the uh, service that you need to provide safely? Considering the areas of quality of service, access to service, and cost of the service. Now, a key recommendation of the Emergency Medicine Programme for some time, and we have established it in other areas, is the establishment of units such as injury units recommended for NAVIN to allow the provision of as much care as locally as is safely possible, which, as you know, is one of the key aspirations of the Sloan to Care Programme, whilst ensuring that the right patient gets to the right place first time. Okay, um, we listened to the Minister speaking on the 21st of June. Uh, he, he put uh, the proposal or the decision uh, on hold uh, because uh, the emergency department should have closed on uh, the 30th of uh, June. And the Minister said that uh, what was needed was some very purposeful discussion on all of this, a meaningful discussion and engagement, he said, with elected members on all sides of the House and other stakeholders, including the community and clinicians. Uh, What has happened since the 21st of June? 
Well, as you probably know, I was at a meeting in the Department of Health with the Minister and the local Oireachtas members um, where we answered the questions that were put to us to allow them to explain the situation to the people who will be affected, the residents of Navin. Okay, I think that so, was before the 21st of June, though. Uh, that, yeah, that was the 13th yeah. of June. Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. because this, the, the, I'm quoting the minister uh, from his contribution to a, a dull debate, uh, which uh, was a Sinn Féin proposal to keep the emergency department open, uh, as uh, I'm sure you remember. But he said that uh, there would have to be meaningful dis- uh, discussion on this. Uh, that's pretty much a month ago. Uh, so there's been no discussion in the last month. No discussion with the Oireachtas members, is it? No, with clinicians, with the HSE. Well, certainly my emergency medicine colleagues and others in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, they have correctly expressed concern that an increased number of patients attending the emergency department there may result in increased risk. Uh, we know that uh, people waiting long times on trolleys for a patient for admission is harmful. So they've correctly highlighted that risk, which is what I would do if I was in their position, and they have received answers. Um, my understanding is that 40 extra inpatient beds have been provided in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, in anticipation of an increase yeah. in number of uh, and two ICU beds, I think. I think. I think, I, I, I think the, the the forty beds and the two ICU beds uh, were uh, at least uh, allocated in principle before the letter which the consultants in Drogheda uh, sent to the minister on the twenty second of June. Uh, I can. I'm not. I, I'm aware of the letter. I'm not sure of the timing. Well, I have it here in front of me, and it's dated the twenty second of June. Yeah, they okay. they speak about a meeting that they had with the minister on the 9th of June, which was the first meeting, the first opportunity they had to discuss their very serious concerns about this proposal, uh, and they had complained that uh, they had been consulted uh, on it before a decision had been made to close the emergency department in Navan, and uh, they went through a, a number of issues, including the experience of closing. Uh, the Louth County Hospital in Dundalk and merging medical services uh, with uh, Drogheda uh, and indeed uh, sending stroke patients from Navan uh, to Drogheda and the experience that they had uh, of that becoming one of uh, the busiest hospitals in the country, receiving more stroke patients than St. James's Hospital in in Dublin, but totally understaffed. Uh, The number of staff that they mention in that letter that the Lourdes Hospital uh, is short of uh, would be very worrying in itself, let alone uh, under the circumstance uh, where the HSE is proposing giving extra workload to the consultants who are there. So I have experience of service reconfiguration such as the Louth in my own area in Cork 10 years ago and I am uh, aware of the concerns that they have and they need to have them addressed. My understanding is that those manpower issues are being addressed as we're speaking. Okay. Um, there's a, a lot of manpower. Uh, maybe we c- could talk through that uh, because they're saying there's no full-time neurology, stroke or rheumatology consultants working in the hospital. Uh, and they're concerned about this extra workload. Uh, they're also uh, saying that there's no on-site dialysis services and uh, on-site vascular intervention radiology service. Uh, again, another concern relating to the proposal to send more hospi- patients into the hospital. A, a, a hospital that the doctors working in Drogheda say is already full to capacity. I know uh, my own emergency medicine colleagues in Drogheda well. I know they work extremely hard. I know it's a very busy hospital. I know, as with any hospitals, there's a need for ongoing provision, recommendations and development of services. I'm not sure how much of that is specific to the plans for Our Lady's Hospital, uh, Our Lady's Hospital in Avon, though. I don't think the number of patients from Our Lady's Hospital in Avon is going to be that significant to oh. affect all of those services. 
Okay, again, they're arguing that point. Uh, They're saying that uh, that's being underestimated by the HSE uh, and uh, they believe uh, that, um, if I can just find the section of the, it'll increase by 15 to 30%. I'm just trying to find the section, the paragraph of the letter. They believe that ED emissions in Drogheda will increase by 15 to 30%. So I... This is realms of speculation. I don't believe that is going to be the case based on previous experience. <clears throat> I think we're talking about a smaller number of patients than that. Okay, but we're talking about 23 consultants who are working on the front line in Drada who do believe that. That's very hard uh, to contend with, uh, and I imagine that's what's feeding us to the Minister's thinking. <clears throat> I would imagine you're right, and I think that's what's being worked through at the moment in order to forward the recommendations that we have made about that. In the meantime, Navin is unsafe uh, and patient outcomes could be much poorer than expected. And uh, we've had a a number of your colleagues on on the programme explain to us that that could, uh, in very dramatic circumstances, result in an unnecessary death. Um, That is the concern, that if a patient who is too seriously ill, their needs are too complex, too immediate to be provided for a NAB ends up there, that there will be inevitable today with adverse outcome. And that's precisely the risk that we're trying to address with these recommendations, whilst making sure that there's adequate provision for what I would call the quantum of care that needs to be delivered. So we're talking about the quality of care that needs to be delivered to the single patient who is a small number of patients, but who is seriously critically ill for something that could be remedied if they were in the right place versus the quantum of care, all those people who are not so seriously ill but still need urgent care. So we're trying to get that balance right, making sure that we get a small number of patients to the hospital that is provide, uh, equipped to provide those services, whilst maintaining as much service as locally as is safely possible in them. Okay. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure everybody listening uh, will respect your expertise in this uh, and are betwixt and between because... Uh, they're hearing experts. Experts often differ, but this is a, a very serious situation. Very serious situation, and we're hearing completely uh, uh, polar opposite views. Uh, to I guess what I'm saying is, I'm acknowledging that my colleague mm. in Our Lady of Lords should be scrutinising this and saying, "Well, you know, what's coming down the line? Whether or not predictions are accurate is another uh, issue." Sh- should it have been paused? Should the, the, the closure, I mean, it should have closed on the 30th of June. So um, the, the, it, the, the emergency department remains open today well, and that would be is, uh, yes. on the direction of the minister. Was that the right decision uh, for the minister to have made, to give some more time to sort out these problems and these concerns? Well, it was the right uh, decision in the minister's position in that he has to uh, answer to his Eroctus um, colleagues who have questions that they should have answered. We are doing our best to answer them. I I think the meeting on the 13th of June that I've already referred to gave a lot of very detailed answers, but it would appear more questions need to be answered also. Okay, well, that was on the 13th of June. Um, I quoted the minister from the 21st of June and then the doctors in Drogheda from the 22nd of June. Uh, And uh, just going back to the minister's contribution in the Dáil on the 21st. He says, I have met with senior clinicians in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda and they told me they do not currently have the resources required to cater for the additional patients who would have to go through the emergency department. As I say, that was on the 21st. On the 22nd of June then, the doctors wrote to the minister uh, and in bold 
uh, print underlined, they said, the transfer of the risk from an unsafe ED in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan is uh, to an under-resourced Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda will lead to poorer clinical outcomes for patients. Okay, thank you. So you have asked me, is Our Lady of uh, is Our Lady's Hospital Navin currently unsafe? What I would say is there is an accumulating risk that is present every day. It doesn't mean that the service uh, delivered there isn't to the best of the ability to, of the hospital to deliver it. And by and large, I have no doubt of a very high quality. Sure. The risk is the tiny number of patients I've already referred to that their needs are complex and immediate and they require multi-specialty input. That is the risk in Our Lady Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. The risk in Our Lady's Hospital, Our Lady of Lourdes in Drogheda is a different risk. So you're not transferring the same risk from one place to the other. The risk in uh, Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Navan, in Drogheda, apologies, is that there will be an increased number of people on trolleys awaiting admission and we know that that is not good for the patient. And that is why the provision of extra inpatient beds to prevent that accumulation of extra patients on trolleys is the right thing to do. Okay. Uh, which leaves this very unsatisfactory situation because, you say, as you say, it's a, a small uh, amount of patients uh, who would otherwise be seen in Navin who would go to Drogheda instead. I think they say it's 10%, isn't it, of uh, the uh, patients predicted to... Uh, uh, of the in, medical patients, yeah. which is a proportion of overall patients. So yeah. 40 mm. to 50% of the patients currently attending Navin mm. have injuries mm. and will continue to attend the injury unit. There's about 16% who currently have surgical needs which can't be met in Navin and they are transferred currently also. Mm. And then the remainder is the medical of which 80-90% to will mm. still be dealt with in the medical assessment. My experience of these units over time is they actually become busier as patients who currently go to other places come mm. to the place where they'll get more timely treatment. Mm. Yeah, uh, and I'm not, I'm not questioning that, uh, and uh, I'm not questioning your expertise for that matter, uh, Doctor McCarthy, because you know when any of us get sick, <laughs> we want to be in your expert medical hands, and we want the best treatment possible. Uh, and uh, if uh, any of us get sick, or one of our family members get sick, uh, we don't want them to be in that ten percent of the people who would ordinarily go to Navin uh, to get. Uh, less uh, lesser standard of treatment uh, because they've gone to the wrong hospital. We want them to go to the best hospital possible and if that's Drada, I'm sure that's what most people want uh, or in that circumstance, when they're in that situation, they'll want the best treatment and they don't care if they have to go to Dimbug too for that matter. Indeed, uh, that's but, true. <laughs> but, but, but at the same time uh, we have politicians, including the Minister for Health, contradicting you and the Minister for Justice contradicting you, a number of junior ministers and indeed I think all of the local politicians generally Generally, at every level, contradicting you. We've the doctors in Drogheda contradicting you, and we've thousands of people taking to the streets. If I can just, the the doctors in Drogheda, who I've spoken to, they're not contradicting the correctness of the plan. They're just concerned about the adequacy of the preparations in Drogheda. Okay, they did question two press releases, though, didn't they? Saying that there was inaccurate information in that. Uh, You'll have to give me the detail of that, I'm sorry. Okay, um, let me just, (laughs) 
just going over this letter now, Our Lady of Lourdes has currently limited access to essential critical services to treat safety and appropriately patients with acute and serious illness. This is contrary to that which has been released to the press recently and there's a link to a press release there. Uh, and I think there's another press release that they uh, question. So I think they're expressing concern about the capacity of their yeah. services in general. Yeah. yeah. So they have the right kind of service and they just want more of it. Yeah, but they're also questioning the information that has been given to the public through the press. Um, I, I think perhaps I missed something. I think what I heard to say was the question is capacity of the services that they currently have. Yeah, right. but they, they say that the, the, the capacity uh, as it stands, that information uh, about that, uh, the information that was given to the press was contrary um, to the re, re, realistic uh, to the to the reality of the situation. Okay, I I, I wouldn't be placed uh, to comment on that with any accuracy. Mm, okay, well, well, they they they, they make um, as I recall because it's a four page letter and I'm scanning through it uh, as you raise points. Uh, but as I recall, there's two press releases that the doctors uh, took issue with the information in, uh, and that's one of them. They're saying that the the information about capacity uh, is different to the situation on the ground. And that, 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 that raises doubts in people's minds. So I suppose that's, that's the sure, point. I mean, I, I completely understand yeah, yeah, yeah. that people will have concerns, will have doubts, will have scrutiny, um, but I, I still believe this is the correct plan. But, you know, it's, it's only human nature mm. that people want to ensure everything has been talked through. Okay. What about the um, proposal many years back, uh, in 2008, for a regional hospital to be located in Navan because of the location, the population of uh, the town, but not just the town, obviously, the catchment area, uh, and uh, how it would serve more people than any other location. Uh, surely, if you take an emergency department out of a location that has such a, a big, highly densely populated uh, uh, catchment area like that, uh, there's a risk to patients, is there not? So, the risk, I've already addressed the risk that is there when the place is open. Um, we would be far from the necessary infrastructure requirements for a regional hospital. I've heard mention of that plan, but I haven't seen any uh, developments on it. Um, so, the, to uh, again, I'm coming back to the quality of the service, that small 10%, as you've mentioned, who are that most seriously and will travel to Timbuktu. Hopefully, there's no question about me to go that far. Okay. But will be safely brought by the chain of emergency care, as I speak. Over the last few decades in the country, we have spent a lot of time trying to build up the chain of emergency care, which is community first responders, community defibrillators, the ambulance services and Dublin Fire Brigade providing training for paramedics to ensure that they provide adequate resuscitation to the patient. Indeed, sometimes they'll call us to come out when necessary and get the patient to the right place first time. That's the risk reduction that has been implemented in the last few years. Okay. But we're still looking to be able to provide the vast bulk of care that's currently provided in uh, Our Lady's Hospital now and going forward. Okay. Uh, just to conclude, Dr. McCarthy, um, I, I know you believe in this passionately uh, and that you've asked LMFM to speak to our listeners this morning so that you can uh, at least get the opportunity to try and convince people of what's in their best interest. Uh, and there's people listening to us this morning uh, thinking whatever they're thinking, but they're opposed to the idea. Uh, and they will tell you that they were there, uh, th- their mother was there, the hospital sure. saved their lives, uh, only for the hospital, they wouldn't be here today, uh, uh, and so on. And maybe you'd conclude 
by addressing our, our listeners uh, in ordinary terms about why you believe uh, that they should accept your argument. Sure. OK, thanks very much for the opportunity. So as a, just to continue on that chain of emergency care, we have spent a lot of time over the last couple of decades trading different um, specialists, advanced paramedics and that, who really didn't exist 20 years ago, to actually go to the scene, sometimes in an ambulance, sometimes in a rapid response vehicle, sometimes on a motorbike, to deliver their expertise in initial assessment and resuscitation to the patient at the scene, rather than delaying it until it begins in the hospital and then the hospital discovers they need to move the patient on to somewhere else and there's an inevitable delay in that. So we have set up a lot of chains of communication, the National Emergency Operating Centre, Ambulance Call Taker, in Dublin, from the second the call goes in, there are particular questions asked about the state of the patient and if the patient is critically unwell, advice will be given to the caller about how to initiate resuscitation on scene. So that's what I call the chain of emergency care. I absolutely believe that picking those patients out at the point of the development of their emergency and deciding the best place to bring them, which in many cases will remain our ladies' hospital in Navan, is the correct way to go forward. Okay. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the program. Okay. Thank you. That's uh, Dr. Jerry McCarthy, who is uh, the HSE's national clinical lead for emergency medicine. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing uh, this week, Social Justice Ireland has uh, been calling on the government uh, to invest in public services in the upcoming budget and expand the public sector to make healthcare, housing, public transport, childcare and education more affordable, particularly for the less well-off. Let's speak uh, to the author of uh, the report, Public Services Policy Brief, Suzanne Rogers, who's on uh, the line. Good morning to you, Suzanne, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, you were making the point uh, that uh, there's very little public transport I- in rural Ireland, uh, but that has to do with demand, doesn't it? I think what it actually has to do with is the over-reliance we have on the private market. So absolutely, there will be routes that will never turn a profit. And that's a problem if you're running a business providing transport. So we need to maybe look at, I suppose, meeting somewhere in the middle. Just because a route isn't profitable shouldn't mean that a, a, you know, a, a group of people living in a certain place shouldn't have access to decent public transport. So I think that's a, a lot of the issue is that mm. is, is exactly that, that, you know, a lot of these, they're just not going to turn a profit, end of story. But what do we do then in the, you know, to make sure that people actually have access? OK, but if it doesn't break even, somebody has to pay for it. There's no such uh, thing as a, a free lunch. Uh, and uh, then that means that uh, people will have public transport because it's subsidised by people who are, are living in more urban areas, does it not? I suppose, again, I I kind of want to make a difference between maybe an investment and a cost. So something like a public transport conversation is partly financial and partly climate action oriented. So if we are to meet our climate action goals, we're trying to get out of our cars or we're trying to get into electric vehicles. So again, for rural Ireland, unless there's charging points somewhere else rather than just your home, Mm. a longish journey is going to be very, very difficult to make. But you're looking at, um, you know, we are looking at massive fines, like outrageous fines if we don't meet our climate action goals. But money will be spent in some shape or form to, you know, so we're either going to pay fines or we put it into infrastructure. So I often kind of think maybe that's the way we need to frame it, is that in order to meet our climate action goals, we do need to be looking at 
putting money into this improved infrastructure. Okay, uh, and uh, if we are to do that, uh, would that mean um, that we'd have ATC buses uh, driving up the road with a handful of people on them? You shouldn't. Again, ideally, you know, th- th- obviously these will be decisions to make for, for the, the transport authority, but it's very easy, I would think, especially nowadays. You don't need to have somebody stood at a bus stop with a clipboard and a pen. We can do all of this digitally. You can see where your hotspots are. You can see where people are moving to and from. I mean, that's what they do with, you know, any sort of transport system. You're looking to see, okay, where's the bulk of people living? Where do they need to go to? And you're not going to answer every need. I mean, my niece lives in one part of Dublin and works in another. So if she was to use public transport, it's going to take her an hour and a half. If she uses her car, it takes her 20 minutes. So Mm. not every route, even within an an urban centre, is going to be feasible. But you can look and see when are the peak times, who's moving around. Is it school? Is it, you know, people using bus passes after the the, the cut-off time? Mm. Is it um, commuters? So you can see when people are moving around and adjust your system then to protect. As you said, you don't Mm. want a day full of empty buses going around. That serves nobody. Or maybe have a a 10-seater instead of an 80-seater, I suppose. yeah, yeah. Well, can we have the city imps in Dublin? They didn't. They didn't seem to last very long. But you know, something like that, as you said, that it, it's geared towards who needs it, when do they need it, how many people need it, and then you're putting something in that meets that need. Okay, I, I suppose you could Google when the bus is coming uh, if you had internet coverage. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There's nearly always a gotcha, isn't there? Um, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I know for you know for Dublin bus again. You know, you're not too badly off. You'll 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 be able to. You can use the app. You can see when the bus is coming and hope that it does. Um, again, yeah. So part of this policy brief was looking at something as important, especially now when a lot of us are learning from home, still working from home, and we don't know what's coming down the line with COVID. Like, I think we're living, we think we're living in a post-COVID world, but, you know, when you do actually look at the figures, we're not. Um, So again, we were looking at things like access to the internet and who has it. Um, We're actually pretty good in this country. Internet connectivity is quite high. And actually, every household with a kid is connected to the internet. So that's probably no surprise. Um, But only 79% of adult-only households are connected. So that might more maybe reflect that an adult-only household might be an older household. So that may be something that we need to look at. Again, looking at making sure that older people have connection to the internet because we seem to be moving more and more of our services online as well. And that's also in the report as well, is about access to financial services. And again, that that seems to be being pushed online. And we have a, a little section there as well, I suppose, on people minding themselves online and um, you know being savvy as well, I suppose, with their money online. That's a, that's a new skill that we need to acquire. Okay, and uh, you're also looking at what happens when uh, people get into trouble financially and how they manage with that problem. That's it. I mean, this is an this is an ongoing issue, um, and I suppose we had after the crash in two thousand eight, we had an enormous amount of mortgage arrears. We had an enormous amount of people who were over indebted after the crash. There's still an awful lot of people still in mortgage arrears from two thousand eight that we still haven't managed to resolve. So there's that issue there. But for for most of us. Um, you know, making making the wage meet to the end of the month is is a challenge, and it is a skill. It's not a nice. Um, you know, none of us are kind of born knowing how to 
manage our money. So obviously people like MABS, the Citizens Information Centre, the CCPC, all of those organisations will have information provided to people and obviously MABS is there then to to advocate and to represent people who are in financial difficulty. But we will be looking for this sort of conversation to happen at school level because we tend to learn how to manage our money from either your mum or your dad. Whoever manages money in the household, you've watched them do it. If you grew up up in a recession, you're probably better uh, than somebody who grew up uh, through the Celtic Tiger years at managing your money because uh, you've seen uh, your parents looking at the electricity thing going around (laughs) to see to see if uh, and turning things on and off to see which is using the most electricity and at what time and that sort of thing. Uh, Going out and get a a roast dinner example rather than going out and getting a takeaway. Well, I mean, myself and my the sister who's just younger than me, we were born in a recession and then our much younger sister is a Celtic cub. So we have completely different approaches to death, yeah. mm. to finance, to spending. Um, as, as, you, as you rightly said, there was no access to credit. Mm. Um, you know, probably up until really the mid-90s, it wasn't. People didn't have credit cards, they didn't have checkbooks. That mm. wasn't part of our conversation. So learning how to manage debt, and I, again, it's changing all of the time. Mm. If you go online, all this kind of pipe buy now, pay later, um, you know, you can go on maybe and look at what would have been maybe a catalogue mm. or just online shopping. So buying a pair mm. of shoes and paying it off in three instalments sounds like something from the 50s, to be honest with you. Yeah. But it, it encourages to maybe buy more than we need or buy at vulnerable times. If you're shopping at two o'clock in the morning, yeah. Are you making the best decisions of your life at 2 a.m. when yeah. you're sitting up in bed scrolling? So probably, probably not. But uh, another thing, look around the office, uh, for example, Suzanne, uh, if you're uh, at work today and see who's brought their sandwiches in with them. They probably grew up uh, in a recession and uh, the Celtic Tiger Club is out uh, around the corner shop buying sandwiches uh, and a takeaway coffee. That's it. They're having their avocado on their sourdough toast, isn't that it? That's, <laughs> I, <laughs> that's wouldn't exactly it. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. Yeah. But it is, you know, it, it's, and again, we, you know, we, we take, we take being able to manage our money for, for granted. And it, and again, I find as well, it, it's almost the last taboo. Yeah. So we will discuss our mental health much more openly than we used to. We will discuss our sexuality much yeah. more openly than we used to. Under no circumstances are you going to divulge to anybody what you owe on your credit card mm. or what you've put on your credit card or possibly, you know, whether you've remortgaged more than once. Mm. You know, so our our finances are very intimate, very, very close to us. So there's a lot of fear of judgment, I think, as well, when people come forward with... No, and and without being judgmental, um, you know, you hear people saying they they can't uh, afford uh, food. And you hear a lot of reports, uh, and I'd say no matter how much uh, you try to make your money stretch, it's impossible in some cases, but parents are going without meat, for example. But... I know I bought a, a, a small chicken and a small ham recently for around a, a tenner, and I'd say I got ten portions out of that. Uh, and you think, well, you know, um, it's not that unaffordable if you take the time to roast it, cut it up, uh, and share it amongst the family, or freeze it, uh, as would be the case with me. I often think any when we talk about food poverty and fuel poverty, because they're the two big conversations yeah. we've been having re- recently. They are simply poverty. Mm. So you should be able to put food on the table, pay your accommodation costs, heat yeah. and light. They're your 
core. Mm. So if you can't afford food because your rent is too high or you can't afford your rent because your gas and your Mm. electricity are too high. So for me, all of those boil down to income poverty. Mm. There are other facets of food poverty where maybe people don't know how to cook, don't know how to yeah. budget. Mm. Again, if you mm. know if you've been brought up, as you said, depending on yeah. where you've been brought up and by who, you may not have um I'm conscious I suppose, you know, when you look at the homelessness figures, all these mm. little kids living in bed and breakfast. Yeah. I mean, they're just watching stuff going into a microwave. Yeah, like, there is you... there is no oven and and, and I am yeah. trying to be conscious of that and I, I didn't mean yeah. to upset anybody saying no, that. But, no, I, no. but but I, at the same time I was hoping that when I said what I said uh, that maybe I was giving somebody some food for thought or or food to put on the kitchen table over the next week or so. But I suppose, as you said, yeah. you know, that, that should, we should all be able to go yeah. out and buy a chicken and a bag of carrots and yeah. a few spuds and know when to put them on so that, I mean, I know somebody recently interested her mum would turn everything on at the same time. Yeah. So yeah. everything was either overcooked or half done, yeah. but it was all going on the table at the same time. So again, these are skills. Now, I think you're absolutely right. These yeah. are skills that we need to learn. Yeah. And if we don't learn them at home, mm. where do we learn them? So again, yeah. maybe looking at the education system to provide those mm. supports. Or if you buy a chicken and a ham and a joint of beef or something, that you put them all on at the same time. And you're obviously not going to eat them all today, but you only have the oven on once. That, yeah, so uh, even no, things like no, that. Like no, I've been no, reading no, about no. Uh, food banks in the UK and that people were reluctant to take things like beans because they had no means to heat them up. Right. Mm. So, Some people you know, like I mean, cold beans. So, so, <laughs> so I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I think I, we've digressed a bit and we've run over time at this stage, uh, but I've enjoyed our conversation at the same time. Perhaps uh, we can uh, ask you to come back and talk to us again another really? time. And thank you yeah, very much I, indeed. I, I don't really like finishing off on cold beans, but so there we go. <laughs> Story of my life. Listen, there Suzanne, thank you indeed. That's uh, Suzanne Rogers, Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey wants older people to have free access to smart technology. He's on the line and good morning to you, Colin, and thanks for joining us as always. What is it that you're proposing? Well, really what I want to focus on is the idea of, like, old people want to stay in their homes for longer. And I, I suppose I saw it with my own parents in, in their time and indeed I didn't the same. And you see it generally, like, people want their independence for as long as they can. And when you look at the technologies that are out there, if you take the NetWell Centre, for instance, in the dock and the technologies that they're developing, there's so much technology there now that, that can support people and, and give them the opportunity to have that independence and live in their homes for longer. Mm. And I suppose it's also peace of mind for the families as well, that they okay. know that their, their family are, are, have been, if you like, monitored or cared for in that sort of a way. Mm. But, what are you talking about? Are you talking about phones or Alexa or... I'm talking about the like, well, well, if you take for what's there, uh, as it stands, the like of panic buttons or that, that are there that people okay. can, can mm. respond with. But but it's it's the next generation of that type of technology where, mm. let's say, there's monitoring equipment can monitor, let's say, let's say people have heart conditions that can monitor that sort of scenario. There's motion detectors. Mm. Then you can even, in terms of security around the house and things like that, but primarily around motion detectors and, and health monitoring equipment mm. that allows people know if there's a problem or if there's an impending problem that it can be responded to in time. Yeah, well, I, I really think uh, anybody uh, who is living on their own 
um, should really have one of those panic buttons, particularly older people or people who have underlying health problems like that, and that they should also wear them during the day uh, because quite a, a lot of people leave them upstairs and think they'll put them on at night. But it, 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 you you only realise the value of them when something happens during the day. Yeah, I, and that's, I, couldn't agree, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. My own aunt used to use one and she trapped her arm in the window one day and she could, she had the button on and she could press it. And but for that, she would have been trapped there for, for hours. Yeah. Like, and I think mm. that and like that technology is easily available and is accessible and people need to use that. And I suppose what we're saying is if we can get the like of that and then take it to the next generation of technology. Mm. Because ultimately, if you look at, apart from the independence for people, the cost to the state as well in terms of nursing homes and that is yeah. the other side of this. And surely the money that's invested in, in that sort of cost can be reinvested to keep people in the community, in their homes, with their independence. And that's, that re- realigning, I suppose, of priorities is, is really what we're looking at. OK, people listening obviously will be saying, you're, you're jumping the gun here a bit. Um, could you not get us a bag of coal first? Well, sure, look, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, sure I was on the radio with you last week, yeah. Michael, but that, the, the, the energy security thing is a major issue and we need to, to deal with the security or uh, energy security. Europe are looking at it for the, tor- the third round of Repower EU this week mm. in terms of trying to set the priorities and that. And it's vital that we do it now ahead of the winter. I know, but uh, sorry, to put the question the other way, has the government got the money available to it to, to be investing in uh, these devices for people? Well, I think it's it's not so much about uh, finding the money for it, it's about redirecting the money that's invested in, in more costly uh, scenarios, where whether it be nursing homes or whether it be the healthcare implications of not dealing with something in time, that really these are a cost-saving measure in a lot of ways rather than a cost measure, because if people can have their own independence, then they're costing the state less in, less in the long run. So investing in this is, inve- is investing in... in efficiencies are in the state and giving people their independence at the same time and I think that's that's where we need to realign the priorities and as I say if you look at the technologies that's been de- developed in the like of the Netwell Centre in Dundalk it does give that opportunity mm. and if people can stay at home for longer then they, they definitely it's, it's, it shouldn't be a cost yeah. issue mm. Well I, I think that's what we'd all want very good we leave it there Colm thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning Fine Gael, MEP Colm Markey Michael Reed on LMFM. There are 43,256 Ukrainian refugees in uh, the country at the moment. This is according to statistics from uh, the CSO, the Central Statistics Office, uh, released new information yesterday, the fourth in a series of releases by the CSO on Ukrainian refugees. And it is reporting that 4,500 people have arrived into the country in uh, the past three weeks weeks alone. Let's speak to Declan Smith, Senior Statistician with the CSO. And a very good morning to you, Declan, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, These are, of course, our new neighbours. So who are these people? What can you tell us about them? Um, Well, as you mentioned, Michael, um, we we just published Series 4 in uh, a series of publications called uh, uh, Arrivals from Ukraine and Ireland. And uh, based on the allocation of PPSN numbers, we estimate that there's been around 43,256 arrivals to date since the invasion of Ukraine by uh, Russia. Um, Looking at the the, the data in a bit more detail, we can tell that women aged 20 and over account for 47% of the arrivals to date, while individuals aged uh, 0 to 19, both male and females, account for 
another 27%. So between those two groups mm. alone, they, they make up 84% of the total of their arrivals. So the vast majority um, so of the refugees the vast, are women and children. The vast majority, so, yeah, yeah, are women and children. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I suppose they, they like to kind of give the, the human story to it as well, that mm. we've, we've categorised around 39% of their arrivals are, are 17,000 um, as one parent with children under the broad relationship classifications we've used. Mm. Um, but that's has to be taken into account as well. That's uh, like uh, obviously a number of spouses and partners have remained in Ukraine to, to fight the war as well. So mm-hmm. it does give a very human picture as well. Okay, as you say, this is uh, the fourth report on people arriving here from the Ukraine. Four and a half thousand people in three weeks. Forty-three thousand two hundred and fifty-six in five months. Uh, has there been a surge in the last three weeks? Um, it's not so much uh, what I can see is, is a storage a surge. It's, it's just been um, a steady flow of, of people coming in. Right. You know, it's, mm. it's, it, 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 there's a steady number coming in, and the numbers are just accumulating. And like you know, when we talk about forty-three thousand, just to, I suppose to put that in perspective, um, as per the census of population twenty twenty-two preliminary results, County Leitrim has. Uh, a population of just over 25,000 and County Longford has a population of just under 47,000. So when we talk about 43,000 arrivals from Ukraine, it kind of mm. puts in perspective, we're talking about the arrival of, of the size of another county into the into the country. Okay, uh, a significant increase in uh, the population, uh, I take it. Have you a percentage on that? Um, no, I think it might. I don't have it no. offhand, might, but I'd say it, it would be about uh, about one percent of the population. Right, uh, and that obviously will have an impact uh, on how the country operates and the services that are required for the increased number of people, let alone uh, the population uh, before the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but these people are here. Uh, under desperate circumstances, and uh, a lot of them, uh, as many of our listeners will testify, are, are looking for work. Uh, is there a difference in uh, the makeup of uh, people who are, are coming here? Because I think it was uh, pr- pr- thought that when people came here first, they'd be coming to people they know, or they'd be coming here because they were English speaking. And you've been uh, looking at people who have gone to Intrio looking for work, and there seems to be a problem with English, is there? Um, yeah, well, like, well, I suppose when you're looking at um, uh, an influx of the size of 43,000, there will be varying characteristics at an individual level. But uh, generally speaking, uh, looking at findings from the intro public employment services, uh, where they um, organised employment support events uh, for arrivals from Ukraine, they noted that approximately 66% of the arrivals may have challenges with English proficiency in securing employment. Um, but seeing that as well, um, about just over 13,500 arrivals have attended these intro events. Um, that of the uh, about 7,000 that had uh, noted previous occupations, When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
33% were recorded as, as professionals. So that's people like teachers, health professionals, engineers, you know, so, mm. and as well, maybe about 69% um, of those that uh, were the highest level of education was recorded. Again, just about under 8,000. 69% of them had what we, you know, had a national framework qualification of equivalent to seven or higher, mm. which, which is effectively a total level degree or higher. Mm. So um, while th- 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 they'll have challenges, th- they seem to have, you know, to be very experienced uh, work-wise with occupations and um, professionals, like I say, and as well very highly educated as well. Okay, uh, and perhaps there'll be opportunities for them and uh, for the country because of uh, their uh, arrival here. Uh, there's a, a lot of uh, people uh, who have uh, experience in administration. Um, yeah, like uh, the, the, the the professional classification uh, would include people in science and engineering, for instance, health, teaching, business yeah. and administration uh, uh, professionals as well. So, uh, and as highly I, skilled workforce. Sorry, Declan, as I said earlier on, it'll have an impact uh, on all of the services uh, that are provided uh, to the population and to the new members of the population. Uh, school is the most obvious one, isn't it? Um, yeah, and, and what we, we, we had seen too now the, the school year has, has ended, but for the for the last academic year um, we had uh, about just under um, 7,000 arrivals from Ukraine who enrolled in schools. Uh, 71% of those were in primary schools and the remaining 29% were in, were in secondary schools. We'd noted that Dublin had the highest number of children enrolled in schools at just over... 1,200, while Monon had the lowest at just uh, 23. Okay, because you know pretty much where everybody is, everybody who's arrived into the country, uh, and uh, it's not uh, necessarily that uh, the biggest city in the country, Dublin, has the most amount of refugees. Yeah, the... To help us try to effectively map where the arrivals are now located, uh, we use the, the post office addresses that they would use to, to, to avail assistance from the Department of Social Protection as a proxy of their place of, of residence. So it is an estimate in itself. But by doing that, we are able to map about 91% of the arrivals that have come into the country to a local electoral area. Now, the country can be broken down into 166 local electoral areas, so it's, it's quite detailed. And what we found is that there, there's an arrival from Ukraine present in every single LEA in the country. Um, the LEA not in the city had the highest count um, as per the, 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 the last extract that we did on, mm-hmm. on the data. And in, in North Inner City, um, there was just over uh, 1,400 um, uh, people from Ukraine. Um, but when you look at it as a percentage per population, and in this instance we used the 2016 census, yeah. it wasn't North Inner City that the high, had the highest rate per 100 of the population. It was actually the LEA in its time over in Clare. Uh, which had the highest rate at 7.53%, so about 1 in 14 people yeah. are now from Ukraine living in that LEA. Uh, it, it, it didn't have the highest number, like say, mm-hmm. not in the city did, but it had a sizable number in yeah. itself as well, at just over 1,200. 12, 
Yeah, well, when you walk down the street, one in 14 people are, are from Ukraine. Uh, it's a, yeah, yeah. A, an incredible increase in uh, the local population. They're really, really interesting statistics. Uh, uh, and we're all living through all, all of this. And uh, it's good to hear uh, a little bit uh, about our new neighbours. Uh, and uh, I'm sure many of them will be here for some time to come. Many thanks, uh, Declan, for talking us through that. No problem at all, Michael. Thank you. Thank you indeed. Declan Smith is a senior statistician with the Central Statistics Office. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, today. Thanks to John in Drogheda, who was on the phone. And John says, I'm in my 60s and I've seen very hot summers. But what has me really alarmed is that everyone is going on about carbon emissions. What about the elephant in the room? There is not one mention about the depletion of the Amazon rainforest and the effect that that's having on the world. Why aren't government looking at this we'll be in trouble when it's gone thanks John for that um, we'd a whatsapp message from Declan about the hospital a couple of people in touch with us about the hospital this morning following uh, the interview uh, with uh, the HSE's national clinical lead Dr Jerry McCarthy uh, on emergency medicine Dr Jerry McCarthy at the beginning of uh, the programme uh, Declan says Navin Hospital uh, could be brought up to standard if you invested in it invest in it and bring it up to standard a proper investment where the government is held accountable not like the National Children's Hospital which is a, a money pit he says uh, the population is growing locally Tara Mines uh, is growing it's absolutely shocking what's happening to our beautiful country they have no problem when it comes to wasting money but when it comes to looking after people it's a different story time for a major change says Declan thank you Declan uh, we're talking about what you eat uh, and how you choose what you're eating and uh, how you go about providing uh, food for yourself and your family. Uh, and uh, as part of that conversation, I was talking about bringing sandwiches to work rather than paying a fortune for them around the local shop. John Androhada says uh, he brings meat sandwiches to work with him every day. Uh, that's M-E-E-T. Uh, it's bread, meeting, bread. <laughs> In other words, it's just bread. And he says he, he's done that since the day he started working. Uh, thanks, John. I hope uh, it's not that long ago since he started working. Um, somebody else, uh, John and Trim, in touch with us about uh, the interview uh, with Dr. McCarthy earlier on. He says, I've heard many interesting interviews, uh, but that was a, a, a merry dance. Uh, I was assured of nothing, says John, uh, because uh, I think Dr. McCarthy was with us this morning trying to assure people that it would be in everybody's interest to close the emergency department. Uh, Sandra in Bettystown says... She'll never understand why there are not purpose-built bungalows and communities for older people to downsize to so that maybe they can continue to live at home. It's very sad that someone has to go into a nursing home just because the toilet and the bedroom is upstairs. Thanks uh, for that, uh, Sandra. Of course, uh, there are uh, those grants, uh, but uh, quite often the waiting time uh, is so long uh, before uh, you can get a stair lift or, or whatever um, that... Uh, you probably would be better off going in somewhere. Uh, you do see people moving downstairs as well on occasion. Uh, Margaret in touch uh, about the interview with uh, Dr. Jerry McCarthy earlier on. She says, Dr. McCarthy is wrong. Our, our Lady's Hospital is not just for people in Navin, it's for the people of Meath. He, he said he doesn't think uh, there will be a higher number of patients going to the Lourdes, but that's not the big problem here. Neither he or the HSE know exactly how many patients will have to be sent from Navin to it. And 23 consultants who work there said they haven't got the capacity to cope. And I believe them, says Margaret. Thanks uh, for that. Deirdre and Kel says uh, 
the hospital saved her life and she wouldn't be here only for the hospital. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Somebody else says, I don't think Our Lady's Hospital in Navin is safe because it was safe. If it was safe, they wouldn't have a man waiting 14 years for a knee operation. A bloody disgrace. My God, really? Is that 14 years? I can only uh, tell you what I'm reading in front of me uh, here on the screen. Uh, I obviously can't verify that, but I I can't believe anybody's waiting 14 years uh, for... Is it a knee operation or a knee replacement? But but for any procedure, 14 years. That really does seem a bloody disgrace, as you say in your texts. Thank you indeed if you have been in touch with us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. I'm just reading some of uh, the comments uh, from young people who were speaking uh, to the researchers working on the review of uh, the sex education curriculum across primary and secondary schools. In the Irish Times today, uh, one says, uh, we don't even know what we should know. Another says, we haven't got a, a clue. Uh, somebody else says, we never learned uh, about relationships. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, this uh, comes on at the foot of uh, the publication of uh, the draft social, personal and health education curriculum for junior cycle. Let's uh, speak uh, to Fianna Fáil Senator Fiona Lachlan, uh, who is her party spokesperson on education in Shannon And uh, a very good morning to you, Fiona O'Loughlin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, there's morning, been Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you. There's a, there's a, a broad welcome, uh, I, I think, uh, for the approach that is being taken in this. Uh, there is some criticism, and I guess that's to be expected. Uh, I think it's a really positive day. When I was chair of the Education Committee, we took a a really good review and analysis of the current uh, programme for RSE. That's 20 years old, and in 20 years, a lot has changed, particularly in relation to access social media. And that has to be borne in mind in terms of where young people are getting their information. As you rightly mentioned there, young people are saying, you know, that, that they're not really getting the information, they don't know where to get the appropriate information. And that was one of the key recommendations that we made at the time, that while we absolutely acknowledge that the primary educator for any young person is the home, is the family, is the parent, at the same time there is a responsibility on school life to be able to provide the appropriate um, and age-appropriate information. And there is, um, there's been a lot of consultation with students. Uh, We did that at that point with our committee. From what I understand, the uh, NCC did that also. And there also is a three-month consultation period with this draft for teachers, for families and for students themselves. The student voice has to be central in all of this. Okay. Uh, are they too old for this at junior cert level, I wonder, because... Well, we're, we're talking about the junior cert cycle, which starts in first year. Right, OK. So so at that stage, children will be learning a, a, about um, pornography and if that's the way relationships work in the real world or if that's the way they should work in the real world. It, it's, it, it's, it's not teaching them about pornography or how to access pornography, but it's basically acknowledging that pornography exists and what we do know is that a young, uh, you know, quite a cohort of young people are inadvertently or deliberately 
looking at pornography, a lot of them just stumble across it. And then they get a false perception of what a healthy sexual relationship is. Mm. And we do know from research that leads to a lot of anxiety down the line, particularly on the part of young boys. So it's important that we don't bury our head in the sands. Uh, it's important that yeah. we acknowledge that this exists and... Um, young boys and girls, uh, I think, yeah. uh, because <clears throat> uh, the the effect that pornography has uh, on sexual expectations and relationships uh, is that uh, those watching it, uh, if they're not told otherwise at such a young age, they believe that that's the way you behave and the boys believe that they should be uh, the performing, performing yeah. like the men, yeah, and the girls right. should be performing like the women in these films. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's a huge concern, and that's why we need to start, you know, addressing it. And that's why this particular part is looking at the junior junior year cycle. Now, when the NCC were asked to look at developing a new program, it mm. was agreed that we need. I mentioned age appropriate earlier. That we do need to start looking at what young people need to know in primary school, so particularly, say, fifth and sixth year, as they're growing into young people. Puberty starts at an earlier age now. They're experiencing changes in their own bodies. And uh, so we need to have the age-appropriate material at that age as well. But this particular consultation period is about the junior cycle, which starts from first year and goes up to third year. Mm, yeah, I'd have thought that um, by the time children go into secondary school, they'd have known uh, anything that uh, they should have known and probably more than some of us know because of what they're watching on the internet. Uh, but uh, as you say, perhaps uh, there is uh, work to be done in primary school. Uh, but even in fifth and sixth class in primary school, I think there's a good degree of knowledge at that stage. There is, uh, I agree, and it's because of children accessing social media. Many children at, at the age of eight or nine now have smartphones. Personally, I think that's too young. Um, but 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 who am I to tell a parent mm. what to do? And as I say, inadvertently, often they access this type of information, and it can be incredibly disturbing and upsetting for a child who doesn't know what they're accessing. So I I do agree that we need to look. I I know and I've heard some commentary and indeed received some emails where parents are saying that children be children, uh, that they feel that their children shouldn't Hmm. have to look at, you know, get this information from school. And, And I accept the point that we don't want children to grow up too quickly, but I do absolutely think there is an onus on educators as well as families to prepare our children, uh, yeah, um, yeah, you know, yeah, in the best the sand, way that we can. Yeah, it's head in the sand stuff, though, isn't it? I mean, when people are saying let children be children, yeah. uh, I mean, exactly. the, the parents aren't living with the children. The children are living with their friends uh, and they're, they're, they're living uh, in a virtual world on their phones. That, that's absolutely true. And we want to be our, our young people to know about healthy relationships, to know about consent, um, about both giving and accepting consent and about gender I- identity. Safe sexual mm. activity is very important. And now that pre-contraception has been rolled out, it's, it's important that young people would know the importance yeah. when they do get to the stage. And it's important that they learn about this before they get to mm. the stage of, of uh, sexual activity. And it's really all about mm. you know, developing a strong 
sense of self and about responsibility yeah. and, and about respect. respect yeah, and that's where consent comes in, which is a, consent comes in. It's a big part of this. And I, I do want to talk to you about that. Uh, at the same time, though, you can't blame parents for wanting children to be children and to stay uh, uh, innocent for as long as possible. But uh, the days of children being that innocent into their teens are long gone and it's just not possible unless you homeschool them you don't let them out and you wrap them up in cotton wool you know you're you're right on that and even when you wrap up your children in cotton wool and they're homeschooled at some point they're going out into the world and they have to and it's important that they have social connection with other young people Mm -hmm. and the day is always going to come and it's all about preparation for that day when your child is going to be faced with that decision and also that they have the self-respect that they know it's important Mm. that they give consent and if they don't want to give consent Mm. that that they should not and that nobody should try and take that away from them. So it's really giving young people the tools Mm. with how to live their lives. And, you know, I'm not going to say we live in a sexualised world, but any day we turn on television, even apart from social media, you know, Mm. we do tend to see uh, this, you know, uh, blaring out from us. And it's it's a difficult time for young people trying to negotiate all different types of relationships. So well, we, it's about giving them the tools. We also have to accept, do we not, that um, pornography is part of many young people's lives. There's a, a lot of children who are watching pornography uh, a lot of the time, or uh, at least regularly. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they have the right to uh, expect other people that they have relationships with to play out what they've been watching. And that's where the education in this comes in, I think. Absolutely. And like pornography is all performance. It's actors acting something out. It's not close to a real relationship. And unfortunately, if young people don't have the tools to understand and recognise that, they then think that life should imitate what they're seeing. And that's absolutely not the case. But if they have the understanding of that beforehand, then Mm. they view it through a different lens, so to speak, and won't have the same expectations. Because it is very, very concerning um, what young people are exposed to now. And it's, it's not that we're going to be able to stop young people um, accessing this this type of uh, of viewing, mm. but it's about giving them the skills to understand that that's not real life, and it's not necessarily mm. respectful of the people that that are performing either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only part of uh, the changes uh, that are being proposed. Uh, there's this twelve uh, week consultation period, so I- I'm sure uh, people will be anxious to get in touch with uh, the department as well. Yeah, and I think it's important to do that. And on the site, there's uh, four different ways of being involved. There's a survey for teachers, because obviously teachers are going to be really important to this process. There's a survey for students. There's then a, a, a template for other, like, you know, parents or other individuals who may have something to say. And then if people have a, have a submission. And indeed, there's a lot of interest in the area. There's a lot of organizations who have a lot of research etc so i think that it's um, there will be a very high number of submissions 
And I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what comes back and to continuing to work on developing a new programme that will be implemented. Okay. well, look, thank you very much indeed uh, for speaking to us uh, this morning. That is Senator Fiona O'Loughlin, Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on education. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to what was a, a remarkable meeting of Louth County Council yesterday. Joanna Byrne, Sinn Féin councillor, joins us. And a very good morning to you, Joanna, and thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to be with us on uh, the programme this morning. All councillors, there's 29 elected councillors. All, all of the councillors uh, who attended the meeting yesterday walked out of the meeting. Uh, not happy at all with uh, the chief executive, uh, Joan Martin, we asked uh, Louth County Council uh, to make comment uh, on the situation and indeed the statement uh, that you issued to us and other press rooms uh, around uh, the region yesterday. Uh, Louth County Council, by the way, say they have no comment to make at this stage. Uh, maybe you tell our listeners what happened yesterday. Good morning, Mike, and good morning to all your listeners. I, I'll start off by saying yesterday's turn of events were very unfortunate and in my view, unnecessary. Nobody wants to see any council meeting abandoned, least of all myself. I had many things to get to further on in the agenda as the day went on. But a debate began um, over endeavours that I have been trying to get for Drada Pride, over commitments that have been given to me and to the LGBTQ community in the town, initially for a rainbow crossing and then for life-size rainbow letters which would spell out Drada. Um, do, you want, do you want to just back up a, a second? What's a, a rainbow crossing? A rainbow crossing um, is, I tabled a motion in March looking for a rainbow pedestrian crossing. So it's like a, a black and white pedestrian qu- crossing that is painted in the rainbow colours. Okay. It's symbolic for pride. It's a symbol of inclusion, of openness and embracing mm. of our gay community, our trans community and the wider LGBTQ community. And it's been done in... All over the country, hasn't it? All over the country, absolutely. Um, Initially, I was met with some resistance um, for that in March, and I was told due to traffic concerns, the council weren't willing to do it. And and, traffic uh, traffic concerns. Yeah, look, they they had they wanted to keep the pedestrian crossings in line with the section forty seven guidelines, which you know, Uh, if we're being honest, is is totally understandable. uh, Well, yeah, fair enough. But what are what what are the things they have in Drogheda now that are are red and people are walking out on it, and they're not actually pedestrian crossings or pedestrian crossings that are faded to the point you can't see them? But look, that's a a debate for another day. Yeah, no, but 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 I think it's important in the context of, of. uh, the reason you were given for not... Oh, absolutely. And, and I did get that commitment overturned. Mm-hmm. I went back and I contacted um, Arklow Council, Dublin yep. City Council, Galway County Council, Galway City Council... Where they didn't have a problem Council. with the black and white. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And mm-hmm. I brought their responses as to how they could implement these and not have safety concerns mm-hmm. for cars and pedestrians in their towns back to Larry County Council. Mm-hmm. At that stage, I received a commitment that we would get a rainbow crossing, but they wouldn't put it on the main road. They would consider a park. Dominic's Park was suggested. And I accepted that and said I'd be happy to meet the council halfway, and so would the LGBTQ community. But I suggested maybe Millmount as an alternative venue for it. It's the cultural quarter for the town. Pride is opened in Millmount on the Friday of Pride Weekend every year and has been for the last six years. So that was a suggestion that was put in and that commitment was given publicly by the Director of Services at the April Municipal District. Okay. What ensued then, Dundalk Municipal District tabled a similar motion 
looking for a rainbow crossing in okay. Dundalk mm. and everything blew up. The chief executive said she wasn't supplying them anywhere and she offered a compromise um, to install these life-size rainbow letters. So they would okay. spell out Drada, they would spell out Dundalk, mm. they'd be placed in town centre venues. People could get pictures with them, they could be used in okay. pride festivals so, and whatnot. Sorry, and that so, was a decent enough so, compromise. So, so, sorry, sorry, Joanna, just... Uh, I want to slow you down a little bit uh, because I just want to try and understand what happened. Yeah. Um, it was agreed. The director of services uh, agreed, uh, and to then the rainbow crossing. yeah, to the rainbow crossing. And then uh, when it was brought up in Dundalk, the chief executive Joan Martin said no. For real, this. You're not having any of them. Yeah. And why was that? Was that back to the black and white stuff or? I don't know, to be perfectly honest, which right. I can't speak for the chief executive. Um, you know, these were being placed, the one in Drogheda agreed to was being placed off a main road, off yeah. a traffic road, so it couldn't be due to safety concerns. Well, that had been agreed, but she was overruling. Absolutely. She was yeah. undermining the director of yeah. services, usurping yeah. the authority of the director of services and so on and so forth. Okay. Yeah. And we don't, we don't um, know why she didn't give any explanation, but... No. Okay, all right. No. And this is where frustration is building. Uh, and, you know, you, uh, and you said, she said, we won't have, be having any of them anywhere. Yeah, they, weren't, they, they were not considering them anywhere in the county. Right, OK. So the compromise so, yeah. um, was offered then of the life-size Col- rainbow. Coloured letters. letters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Coloured and they're done in the yeah. pride colours, yeah, spelling yeah, 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 and yeah, Dundalk. Yeah. Um, I wasn't at the meeting that that was agreed, but I was at the following one. And I had a conversation myself when I saw clarity as to what this agreement was. Mm. And I said to the chief executive, have these been ordered? They have. I said, well, where are you putting them? Uh, myself and herself had this meeting at a corporate policy group. And she said, I'm thinking of putting them at Lawrence's Gate. Yeah. And I said, that that would be great. I said, because that's on the route of the, the Pride Parade. Um, I said, however, it is wide open and unmanned at night time. And I would have concerns that they may be vandalised. Again, you might consider Millmount for the same reasons. Cultural quarter of the town. Pride is open there every year. People can drive there, get pictures there, and they're safe. They're off the main road. And, and she actually thanked me for the suggestion and said, I will consider that. So I heard no more about it um, until two weeks ago. I contacted the chief executive and CC'd her directors in the email because um, I didn't know who specifically was handling it. Mm. And I saw it an update as to when they were arriving. Um, the Pride is now only three, two and a half weeks away. Um, where were they going? Um, where are they going with Lawrence's Gate as originally suggested or where are they going to Millmount and how long were they staying for? And I got no response for a week to the day. And then I got a one-line response from a director saying, um, this hasn't progressed as it wasn't agreed um, at CPG. Now, what happened at the CPG that I had that what, conversation... What's CPG? What's that? It's the corporate policy group right, of the okay, council, which yeah. I'm a member of. Okay. What happened at that meeting when I was having the conversation with the chief executive about the location was Councillor Jim Tennanty, who represents RD, piped up, as, he, as he's quite entitled to do, and asked, could they get one for RD? And at that stage, the chief executive got a bit touchy and threw the hands up in the air and said, well, you know, if RD's going to be demanding everything the two big towns are getting, um, I'll put nothing in nowhere for anything, was kind of what she said, you know. But like she tends to do that. She throws these tantrums from time to time and nobody challenged her on it. And Jim just said, you know, OK, well, look, I had to ask, you know, I'm, I'm not causing a fuss here in fairness to him. He's very diplomatic and... He said, he said, I had to go back and tell the people I represent that I did ask for one of these. She's fair play to him for doing it. So when I followed this up 
um, and I got my response after a week. I got a one-line response saying if this wasn't agreed, a CPG hasn't progressed. Mm. Um, so I obviously went back and I said, back up there, this was agreed. There was a conversation about where they were going. Um, you know, this is, is not on, first of all. You undermined your own director of services and overruled the the rainbow crossing that was publicly committed to. Now you're undermining the word I've gave to the LGBTQ community, and that all that leads to is an undermining of working relationships between the council and the councillors. Okay. Um, and I said I'd now re- go back to my original request and actually to reconsider the rainbow crossing for Pride. I know it's only a couple of weeks away, but the short time frame is in my turn. And I got no response. This was last week. So I give the chief executive every opportunity to come to some resolution mm. or even to offer some clarity as to why they were that there was the U-turn on this. And I got no response. So I had no alternative but to raise this publicly yesterday. And if yeah. I'm being honest, I did expect some sort of resistance as the chief executive can get defensive when challenged, mm. but not to the point that it escalated. It. Yeah, and I just want to back up uh, 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 on um, the criticism you made earlier uh, defensive when challenged, uh, you said a a moment ago, uh, and I'm sure uh, the chief executive uh, wouldn't have a problem with you saying that, uh, but uh, I think you used a turn of phrase earlier on which meant defensive when challenged uh, and probably very strong in her defence that it wasn't a tantrum uh, because that can uh, raise all sorts of images in people's minds uh, that uh, the chief executive was uh, calm and measured but, but very vocal and strong in her argument against Jim Tennessee, uh, but I, I, I'm sure you didn't mean that it was a, a tantrum, that that was just a, a turn of phrase that you were yeah, using. Yeah, that yeah. was it. Okay, but, um, but I, I wouldn't say the Chief Executive was very strong and vocal okay. yesterday. Okay. I think what happened yesterday in the walkout by councillors was a symptom of frustration that is building right around the chamber with you, you, the you Chief Executive she, at times. She looked away from you, did you? She, looked yeah, away, she, she just looked down and didn't... Yeah. It's a complete unwillingness to engage with councillors if there's conflicting opinions or different points of view being offered to the floor. Now, her blatant disregard yesterday to councillors, not just to myself, but councillors from all parties who were speaking and asking questions, she just bowed her head to the floor and ignored everybody. And in effect, in doing that, she shut the meeting down herself. She had effectively left the room um, you know, not in person, but in spirit. She looked at the floor and this went on. Now, the debate had gone on for about half an hour, but for the last 10 minutes of this, um, at this stage, it wasn't even me contributing. It was going around the room. There was other councillors seeking clarity and clarification and updates, uh, including the Mayor of Drotted and my IAD, who who offered a couple of suggestions and contributions and was point blank ignored. Um, And at this stage, the Chief Executive had just shut off. She had shut off the meeting. She was responding to nobody and uh, councillors had no alternative but at that stage to leave. You know, we're there to represent um, people people who elected elected us there. Um, you know, I was there that's in, in that debate trying to get answers for the LGBTQ community that I represent and very proudly advocate for at any stage when I'm asked to. Um, and, and to be hit with that resistance and hit with that level of that lack of engagement um, and that lack of communication it's not acceptable and it's not acceptable to any councillor but in my view it was it was unnecessary um, you know there could have been some dialogue offered and perhaps some agreements or mm. made and, and it's, this is a democratic process not everybody is, is always happy mm. 
but I think dialogue is key and communication is key and to, to just okay. shut off, completely shut the blinkers down right. and look at the floor. That's how the meeting was shut down. Let, 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 let me um, get to the <coughs> nub of this or try to get to the nub of it with you if we can. Uh, do you believe there's a, a problem uh, between Louth County Council and facilitating the LGBTQ community or is there a, a problem in the relationship between the chief executive and uh, the uh, locally uh, elected representatives? Or is it both? Um, I think at this stage, the Drada LGBTQ group in the town believe that there is an issue with them. That's for them to say. I know they're listening in this morning. They're very upset. They're very animated over this. Um, I have to say, in the defence of Loud County Council, they do fly the pride flags in their buildings and are happy to do so at any stage. Um, So I'm not quite so sure it's as deep as that, but I can't put my finger on what the resistance is. That's been perfectly honest with you. And that's why you can't get to the bottom and you can't find a resolution of an issue when you don't exactly know what the problem is and you're not being told what okay, the problem well, there's, is. Okay, well, there's obviously a problem between the chief executive and the uh, locally Look, elected I, representatives. Look, I pride myself on having a good yeah, working relationship yeah. with officials and council colleagues, mm, but, irrespective but, but, of party politics. But, but, but it's I a nobody's... this opportunity yeah, for the chief executive to try and resolve this. Yeah, uh, I just, think her actions yesterday have damaged her credibility to see... Every, no, there wasn't 29 councillors in attendance. I, I mm-hmm. should point that out. Yeah, you did yeah, say that at the yeah, beginning. There was yeah, probably yeah. about 20. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, well, there was seven but, but But listen, yeah. Joanna, um, uh, what happens from here? Um, because that's in nobody's interest and that can't continue. And I could imagine that the 20 or 29 councillors would be tempted to go back and uh, bring this up again and walk out again. But you can't keep doing that every month. Uh, no, no. Is anybody and, going and the walkout to... wasn't planned. No, like, no. At, at one no, but there's, a, there's a minister... Just to ask you a question, there's a Minister for uh, Local Government, Dara O'Brien, uh, has mm-hmm. he got a role in this? Do you, do, do you need intervention? Do you need mediation? I, I don't know if it's at that point. We did go through that process of 2018, you might remember, and we brought in an outside facilitator, Anne O'Keefe, and there was an Anne O'Keefe report, and there was a whole load of dialogue between the executive and councillors at that stage. That was a very troublesome period. Um, I don't feel that relationships are that fraught at the moment. But I do feel there is a level of resistance and I think that's replicated in the views of other councillors to the extent that they did get up and leave yesterday. Like there's motions, you know, I've tabled motions for millions of things. I've got to the point where I stopped tabling motions because they're never acted on. Table motions for a homeless facility in the town for people with drug entrenched and alcohol addictions. There's been motions tabled by my colleagues in the council for necessary things like changing place facilities, dog parks, all these motions are supported by all the members, but they're put sitting on a shelf to gather dust for 10 years. So there is a frustration building that councillors' views and things that we're bringing to the table to try and improve our communities and include minority yeah. groups well, of that's democracy. are not been taken seriously. That's what, that's what people elect you to do those yeah. things. Absolutely. Uh, and if yeah. you're ignored, it's people, the people of... Uh, Drogheda in your case or across Louth uh, when you look at uh, the local authority in general it's the people of County Louth that are are being ignored if those motions are not acted on I think that probably speaks for itself Joanna I'm over time I have to leave it there I think we'll be back talking to it again in the uh, coming days Uh, thank you indeed though Sinn Féin Councillor Joanna Byrne 
Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. FM. So now, as is usually the case around this time, on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents. Garda, you're investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda, Kate Patterson joins us from uh, the Community Engagement Unit in Dundalk for the report this week. And we're going to begin with a tragedy, unfortunately, and uh, a fatal road traffic collision that happened in Carlingford on Sunday afternoon. Good morning, Michael. Yes, that's right. So the Guardian Carlingford and O'Meath are currently investigating the circumstances surrounding a fatal road traffic collision on the R173. That's the primary road between Carlingford and O'Meath. It took place just on Sunday past, the 17th of July. A male motorcyclist in his 60s was unfortunately involved in a single vehicle collision. And despite efforts by the emergency service, says um, he died at the scene. Now, the road was closed for a number of hours as a forensic collision examination took place. And Gardy would like to speak to anyone who may have witnessed the incident or anyone who may be in possession of dash cam footage on this stretch of road. Now, the times we're particularly interested in are 3pm and 4pm on Sunday. Sunday just passed. It was a very warm day and Carlingford was extremely busy with visitors. Um, if you can assist the investigation, the Guardian Carlingford would really like to speak to you and they can be contacted on 042-938-8400 or as always on the Garda Confidential Line, 1800-666-311. OK, we're going back a, a couple of weeks for our next report to the 5th of July, a serious assault that occurred in Dundalk. That's right. So it would have been today, two weeks ago, a fortnight ago, um, this serious assault took place on a male on the 5th of July in the Barrack Street area of Dundalk. The male in question received serious head injuries and he's currently being treated, treated for his injuries in Beaumont Hospital. And um, Gardy believed that a group of maybe four men were involved in this attack, which took place just before 7pm in the evening. A number of weapons were used in the attack, which we have unfortunately yet been able to retrieve. Those involved in the incident left the scene in a black Volkswagen Passat and a navy Seat Alhambra. Both vehicles were subsequently retrieved and are currently being forensically examined. So the Guardian Dundalk would like to speak to anyone who was in the Barrack Street area of the town at the time. That is just before 7pm on Tuesday the 5th of July. Perhaps somebody captured the incident on Dashcam, maybe they captured it on their mobile phone, or maybe someone came across a weapon that may have been used. If so, we would urge you to contact Dundalk Garda Station or the Garda Confidential Line. Okay, that was two weeks ago today, uh, as you say. Two weeks. Sorry? Oh yes, sorry, two sorry. weeks ago today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, coincidentally, uh, we stay in Dundalk uh, and uh, another assault, uh, this uh, occurred on Sunday just gone. Yeah, so unfortunately another assault in Dundalk, but this time much more recently, um, took place in the early hours of Sunday morning past. Guardy who were working were made aware of an altercation that had taken place in the Park Street area. So it's a well-known area full of pubs and clubs and restaurants. Um, when the Guardy arrived on the scene, they came across a male who had suffered facial injuries. The male was able to describe his attacker. Um, this attacker was subsequently arrested, but Guardy would still like to speak to anyone who may have witnessed the assault or who was in the vicinity at the time. We would particularly appeal to anyone who may have caught this incident on their dash cam or on their mobile phone. And again, Dundalk Garda Station is where you can contact them 
0429388400. Next to what Gardy called criminal damage, uh, what others might call mindless vandalism at uh, the local GAA club in Toborona. Absolutely. Mindless vandalism that resulted in thousands of euros worth of damage. Um, the Neve Menina Hurling Club, based in Toborona in Dundalk, they're currently trying to carry out repairs and upgrade their facilities. Now, they recently reseated their pitches, and sometime between 5pm on Sunday the 10th of July and 5pm on Monday the 11th of July, someone decided to take a scrambler onto the pitch, and literally, Michael, they tore it up caused extensive damage. Um, as I say, it happened at the Neve Menina GAA Club, Toborona in Dundalk. And if you can assist the investigation, if you were in the area at the time, that was Sunday the 10th of July to Monday the 11th of July, please get in touch with us. Um, also, contact the Garda confidential line if you don't wish to call the Garda station. The number for it is 1800 666 uh, We've run over time terribly on the programme. Uh, uh, could I ask you to briefly condense what you have in terms of advice uh, in less than a minute, if that's possible, about reservoirs Absolutely. and parking, please? I'll try, Michael. Yeah, so I suppose we're, we're all summer ready and it's great to see so many people out enjoying the sunshine, but we need to issue a number of warnings. First of all, swimming in areas such as reservoirs, in particularly the reservoir in Dramad. Um, it attracts youths who want to cool off every summer, but it's strictly prohibited due to the dangers caused by a number of issues. Um, the reservoirs are much cooler than the sea. The temperature often doesn't rise above 12 degrees centigrade. And the reservoir in, in Dramad has particularly steep sides. So if somebody got into difficulty while swimming, it would be very hard to get out. This reservoir has heavy underwater machinery. It's used to move the water. And the inlet pipe can actually drag a person under the water whilst they're swimming. So parents of teenagers, please keep an eye out on them. Please keep them away from reservoirs. And if you see somebody in difficulty in open water, ring the emergency services as soon as you can. And don't block emergency services when you're parking, particularly in Clara Head. I think another message we have to leave it there. Garda Kate Patterson of Dundalk Garda Station. Thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. And we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, God willing, at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.